0: Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Today, we have a very special guest, as we are joined by Jackie Reeses, former head of Square Capital, current chairman of the Economic Development Council of the Federal Reserve of San Francisco, and all-around business and fintech leader, whose past roles also include chief development officer at Yahoo and board member of Alibaba. She's also a proud alum of our very own Burton School. We talked about Jackie's upbringing and professional background, why she describes Wharton and the University of Pennsylvania as a place that saved her life, the meaningful lessons she learned while working at Goldman Sachs, Apex Partners and Yahoo, key reflections from her experience as an Alibaba board member and what we can all learn from Chinese entrepreneurs, what drove her decision to join Square and why she fell in love with the company culture, the incredibly impactful experience of the Square Capital team navigating COVID and the dynamics of PPP during mid-March and onwards, her outlook of the road ahead and what's next for Jackie, and a whole lot more. Now join me in a truly inspiring and fascinating conversation with the outstanding Jackie Reeses. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Sure uh, thing, I happy should, to. Yeah, and I, I should say welcome back home as uh, you are a proud Wharton alum and we're definitely proud to have you.
1: Uh, oh, of course, my pleasure.
0: <laughs> yeah, so maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your background and how you've navigated your career over the last few years?
1: sure thing. Well, I'm from Margate, New Jersey, so I know a lot of Penn kids in ordinary circumstances go to Margate or they used to go to Margate in the spring when the weather got great to go to the beach and Penn was the only school I wanted to go to. I'll linger a bit on Penn just for the benefit of the uh audience and I had run a bunch of businesses when I was in high school and had a very entrepreneurial thread through almost everything I've done in my life. And Penn was the perfect place to go when you're a kid who wants to be an entrepreneur and all you dream about is building your own business. And so I went to Wharton undergrad, graduated in 92, and was a tried out at Penn. Also met my husband at Penn. He was a Penn Law 90. And so I met him at 3956 Bruce Street at a party right before school started. After school, I went to Goldman Sachs. In 1992, I got what was perceived to be an incredible job, which was working in M&A at Goldman. It was like the end-all be-all for Wharton undergrad kids at the time. and I hadn't quite appreciated what the firm would be like or what it would teach me, but it certainly was an incredible learning experience for me and a place that I will always credit for learning a lot of skills around professionalism and excellence and teamwork and so both Wharton and Goldman hold a very special place in my heart spent years at Goldman and then realized I wanted to go build my own thing and I ended up continuing on a path to try to build businesses around financial services with a few derivations here and there that weave me through some unusual paths of learning and worked at Goldman Sachs. I moved from the M&A group to the principal group. That was an incredible experience to be investing for Goldman early on in the life of Goldman Sachs Capital Partners. I also worked in equity capital markets for Eric Dobkin, career highlight and one of the most amazing mentors in my life who remains a consistent voice of reason and influence. Even to this day, I speak to him every now and then to get advice from him. I'm glad at this point in my career I can give some advice back. It feels kind of good to be able to contribute back to people who've had an influence in my life. So, from Goldman, then turned to a path in in private equity and ran a software company that Goldman had invested in, helped build a private equity firm, which was Apex Partners, and was on a path to go start my own firm and ended up transitioning to tech to go work for Marissa at Yahoo. So, Yahoo enabled me to move to California which I wanted to do. My husband was a TV producer at the time, was working on American Idol in Los Angeles and so making our way to California was a great family option. And so I immediately jumped at the opportunity to try to restructure and rebuild Yahoo and was fortunate enough to be asked to go on the board of Alibaba pre-IPO. And so between Yahoo and then Square, it's been an amazing journey. At Yahoo, I ran a whole bunch of things. I ran the search affiliate business, which was about a quarter of Yahoo's revenue, MA, HR. I referred to it, but I sat on the board of the Asian Assets and then went to Square to go start their lending business after that. So long meandering journey, but a fun one nonetheless.
0: Definitely a lot to unpack there. But before we talk specifically about some of the companies, let's go back to Wharton and Penn. How has I guess the Penn influence and experience followed you and helped you along the way.
1: So, I describe Penn as saving my life and kind of launching me on a very different path. And to this day, I'm still very close with so many people from Penn, even if I wasn't close with them in undergrad, but they show up in all different walks of my life. And so, there are many instances where I suggest that people find a school like Penn and go build relationships in the way that I was able to from the experience and make them lifelong, impactful relationships. You know, first, when I was an undergrad, I worked at the Small Business Development Center. That was an amazing experience. And it enabled me to think about building a business. And my roommate, Susan Correa, and I, she's from Curacao wrote a business plan for a watermelon-flavored soft drink. And we were getting it funded, but yet I knew enough to know I didn't know anything. I think that was probably my first substantial learning that caused me to take a break from an entrepreneurial path and choose to go work at Goldman Sachs because I felt like I was absolutely clueless, even though I thought I could be successful with someone who I really wanted to partner with in an idea that I was inspired by, but I just didn't think I had enough kind of tools in my belt to be smart about business decisions at the time. And so Wharton set me off on a path for kind of lifelong global exploration and for building incredible relationships. And I think interestingly, from my era of Wharton, you see a lot of the private equity funds and the hedge funds have a lot of their leaders from. And I think we were at that era when the asset class was being formed. And so I'm lucky enough to have a lot of those relationships across the street on a global basis, whether it be Saudi Arabia, Egypt, London, Switzerland, or the United States. And I think those Wharton friends I'm able to call upon at any given moment and, and vice versa, you know, you can really enjoy having the benefit of those bonds and those relationships. Now I just joined. Board and Board of Advisors, which Mark Rowan leads. And um, I did my first call. And interestingly, I am a neighbor to another one of our board members. And so it's very funny. I'm taking a call. You could probably see his house behind me, but it's just a funny serendipity about how people can be from all over the world, but the world is quite small.
0: Outstanding. And personally, I haven't even graduated, but I feel that it's already changed my life. And definitely hope to be a, an active alum just like you. Talking about your professional experience, curious to learn more about Alibaba. So, Alibaba has become this huge, giant, influential company, obviously very, very related to all things fintech. How was the company when you were there, particularly pre-IPO? Yeah.
1: yeah, it was very obvious that it was going to be a successful company. And the entrepreneurs behind Alibaba are extraordinary people. And so I joined in 2012. And at the time, I think because of a transaction with Third Point, with Dan Loeb, the company had been valued, I wanna say it, like $30 billion. And Yahoo was being asked to sell stock in that transaction. And I think those of us who were close to the company saw what an unfortunate sale of assets the timing was. And we understood the challenges of corporate dynamics and the need to provide some near-term liquidity. And so there was there was a rationale for the trade at the time, given the dynamics. But it was obvious to see the long-term trajectory of that business being incredible. And the growth of the middle class in China just at its very beginnings. And so even today, I feel like China is in the first inning of a long ballgame. So I'm not at all surprised about their extraordinary success. You know, I think for American companies who believe that they can go to China and be successful against some of the giants in China, I think the biggest observation I see is that we impose our own view of how society works and the way commerce works on another country. And we look at everything through the lens of an American capitalist system. And I think the Chinese system is just very different. And it's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. So when you go there as an entrepreneur, as an executive, you have to start from a grounding that you appreciate and understand how they do business and then build from there. And I think once you get past that learning, you're able to understand how the growth in the Chinese internet society and business system will evolve. And you'll see. The scale of the businesses, because of the population base, because of the ability to use data, because of the way the government works with kind of mandated systems in a more directed way than as is in the United States, you can see the path to greatness for such a depth of companies, particularly in fintech, where many of them are able to leapfrog traditional banking system of China.
0: And from a corporate culture. Uh, point of view, internal processes. What would you say were the key differences that you saw between Alibaba and you know some of its equivalent U.S. counterparts?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest shared thread between Alibaba and American technology companies is that around intensity, around capitalism, and intensity around entrepreneurialism. These are incredible entrepreneurs. I think the speed at which they work to go build businesses and the ability to horizontally pursue paths that are adjacencies to their business, I think is beyond extraordinary because the field is so wide open they're able to grow in a way that is just beyond the scale of the most companies in the United States. I mean the use of people and the use of data is just extraordinary. and I think. This scale, because of the population growth, is extraordinary. The numbers of people moving into the middle class in China is extraordinary. And so I think they're able to use that scale in order to bridge to horizontals in a way that feels very different than the United States. I think you see it in a lot of consumer apps in China also. The density and the number of features and products that they have in many of the most successful apps is very different than a more monoline driven success of having one or two successful customer acquisition vehicles and then cross-sell products from there, in China, the depth of what is cross-sold into a particular app is much denser, much deeper. And I think you see that because they're just leapfrogging businesses in all walks of society in China.
0: Yeah, I I used to live in China many years ago for several years. And the pace of change is so fast that if I go today, I wouldn't recognize it.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. (laughs) It's incredible. They have amazing entrepreneurs. But I I do find there's a a general theme that we've seen and we saw it in telecom and a lot of utilities. You now see it in money and banking that where you don't have the infrastructure set up, tech companies have been able to leapfrog past previous infrastructure and build incredibly enticing companies in order to meet the needs of consumers and, and businesses in a society. And I think you know, we originally saw that with telecom and wireless. Now, the banking system is being leapfrogged in China in a way that provides really compelling products that, in many cases, we in the United States could use some of those features ourselves.
0: Yeah, so I guess you're suggesting that U.S. fintech companies as a whole in the finance space could go to China and actually see the future right? and, and bring some of those, I guess, some of those ideas and features back.
1: There used to be a one way system where innovation started in a 60 mile radius of San Francisco. I no longer believe that to be true. And I think invention is coming from all over the world. And China has been an incredible source of invention, particularly when you look at how many companies, the largest in the world, are starting and coming from China with unique features that are standalone benefits created out of needs of Chinese consumers and Chinese businesses. And I think there's a lot to learn for all global entrepreneurs from each other at this point. It really is a system where you can watch what's happening in different parts of the world and see whether it's adaptable to the particular region that you're in.
0: Now, Switching gears and talking a little bit about Square, so you joined, was it in 2014, 2015?
1: 2015.
0: 2015. I'm starting
1: to forget dates, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it was 2015.
0: <laughs> and so it wasn't a small company, right? But it wasn't... About the, a
1: thousand people.
0: Probably. Right. But it, yeah, now it's becoming a titan and you are definitely responsible for some of that. Tell us about that decision. Why join Square, join a smaller company?
1: Yeah. So my alternatives at the time were so varied. I had talked to folks about leaving Yahoo right as the spinoff was happening. And I was choosing amongst working at Square and starting Square Capital from a Hack Week project, working and being the CEO of a public company, or working in the entertainment industry for a very well-known executive as an investor, almost like a family office financial advisor. And the reason I chose Square was because first and foremost, I thought I had a lot to learn from Jack. And he really had a compelling place in my thinking because I thought he was just a truly unique entrepreneur. And it's rare that someone could build as many successful consumer products as Jack has. And so I thought I had a lot to learn. And, you know, starting from the thread I pulled originally in this discussion, that I knew enough to know I didn't know anything. I knew enough to know I didn't know anything. And I wanted to go have the experience of working with a truly remarkable founder. And so I like the idea of starting a product that was at its most basic level of growth. There was an idea, there was general belief around product market fit, and it needed to be built and scaled. And because I'd spent my career in financial services, it felt highly relevant to being an entrepreneur in the financial services space. I understood it viscerally. Leverage finance, building financial products, creating esoteric financial structures was something I completely understood. And at the time when we started capital, there was no market for what I'd call subprime small dollar whole loans to be marketed institutionally to a broad base such that we thought we could sell it to anyone other than a small group of hedge funds. And so not only did we have to build the product on the consumer side, but we had to build the product on the institutional side in order to get the financing to go build the business to what it is today. And so we created a lot of interesting ways of going about it. Actually, you're from the Stevens Center. Ross Stevens has been instrumental in trying to help entrepreneurs build this market with his fund, Stone Ridge. And so we had an unusually challenging dual path of building out both sides of the market for a lending product and then a banking set of products for small businesses.
0: That's incredible. And tell us a bit about the company culture. You mentioned Jack as a great and strong entrepreneur. What kind of company culture had he created by the time you joined?
1: Yeah. One of the best parts of Square that I love that is very Jack is that around building a company culture around learning, making mistakes, but always making sure you're learning from your mistakes. And that's such an important part of how to build a tech company and how to make sure That when you're pushing the envelope and trying to create something new and trying to invent new products, if something's not working, you have great instincts and the discipline to know when to push further and try to experiment and keep trying and when to call it. And the benefit of a company like Square is that you can push the envelope and experiment with new things. But when you make mistakes, illustrating how you learn from them. And then understanding how to pivot in order to improve your next set of decisions is one of the most critical ways to keep the company inventive organically. And so that's the part of Square's culture that I most appreciate. I think in addition to that, it's also a very humble company, a very inventive company, but you know, it truly stays humble at its core where people are good people. They roll up their sleeves. They're smart. They want to work with each other. and. That part of the company culture makes it a really special place to work. You know, if you need something and it's midnight, you call a colleague and know that if you're desperate for information, for help, you're going to get the help because people are there to really support each other and to make sure that the company thrives and that we all make our own experiences better together.
0: And what would you say were some of your biggest challenges? I mean, you've alluded to. almost having to create a market when it comes to the loans. But what were some of the other challenges?
1: Well, one of the fun things I enjoyed, particularly early on, was that you came into this company. And people forget that when Square went public, it went public at a $3 billion market cap. And so it's very different than a lot of the fintech unicorns today, which have achieved $10 billion valuations plus, even in a private context. And so Square went public at a billion market cap. And I used to talk to all the new hires at their orientation. And one of the comments I made was, you're going to be amazed at what you find in a company that's perceived as successful as Square, that you're going to find so many things that you say, it can't be that this is the way that we do things. This is so screwed up, or it's so not sophisticated. And it's everybody's job in the room to take what they see needs to get fixed and fix it. And you can't rely on someone else to take responsibility for that. We all have an obligation to improve everything in our responsibility set to make things better. Don't expect that to be someone else's job. And I think that was one of the more interesting ways to elevate a company in every function. And if everybody in every function could get 5% better every year, think about how much better the company would be year after year after year. And so that was one of the more interesting places early on that I found like, oh my God, everything was screwed up. Everything could be improved. And although while I'm saying that, there were so many things about the company that were just beyond impressive, like the way they had built the early products going against the grain and and conventional wisdom about trying to navigate the banking system, the credit card networks, it's absolutely extraordinary to have the tenacity to see that through and to get product market fit in the way that Jack and the executives before me had built out an incredible set of early products.
0: Jackie, we cannot talk about Square in the middle of COVID without talking about your experience navigating particularly the height of the crisis that we're living through. I mean. Square was definitely instrumental to processing a lot of loans, a lot of aid that went to small businesses, but how was from within? I Imagine it wasn't easy.
1: Okay, so the PPP dynamics were some of the most extraordinary experiences I've had in my professional life. And so if you roll back to mid-March, we had seen the crisis on the horizon for small businesses because we have a data set that is near instant to understand the health and dynamics of what's happening in the small business community. And as we started to see the crisis unfold with shelter-in-place orders and government restrictions, our team in Square Capital tried to pivot to manage these extraordinary circumstances for the benefit of small businesses. We did not care one iota about how it was going to impact Square. We first and foremost, in almost every conversation we had, thought about how we were going to help save the small businesses that were expected to be impacted by what we were seeing in shutdowns. And so, one of the first things we did was advocate for small businesses with the most senior levels of the federal government. And so, we had the benefit of having connectivity with the most senior members of Treasury. And so, between Treasury, members of Congress, the SBA. We advocated for what we believed the smallest businesses in America needed. PPP was constructed with a lot of considerations at heart, particularly that around keeping paychecks. And so while the construction of the legislation was not what we had envisioned, we understood that it would be the only available resources for our small businesses. And we either jumped on the bandwagon and figured out how to go build a product around PPP or our small businesses were going to be left out of the, that opportunity. And so very quickly after a call that, that both Jack and I had with the Treasury Secretary, we immediately made a decision that we were going to go build a PPP product. Now, we're doing that in the context of no legislation, no product construct, no idea what's going to come out, no idea what the law is. And lending is a highly regulated industry. And so what we did was amass a team. And day by day, we did twice-a-day stand-ups, 8 a.m. and 11 p.m. And as the law unfolded and guidance from Treasury and the SBA unfolded, we built a product. And so we started with envisioning what the ecosystem was. So we needed a banking partner and we needed funding partners. So we knew we went and built that system. And then beyond that, we started to fill in the blanks day by day so that we could build a product to become one of the larger lenders in the PPP program. And every day I felt like I got kicked in the face. And we would get on the phone together and talk about what issues we had, what we were trying to solve, how we were trying to figure this out. It was extraordinary. We had people who worked 20 hours a day, and it incorporated Most of the Square Capital team, we took our entire business lending team. And then in addition to that, we called for volunteers from all over the company. So you can imagine being at weekly team meetings, and I am asking for anybody, any engineer, any customer support rep, that if they're willing to come work on PPP, and this is a a 18-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week role, we needed volunteers. And so there were points in time where we had hundreds of people from around Square volunteering to process loans and take small businesses through our ops process so that we could get the loans through the process into the SBA hands to get approved. And we felt that level of anxiety on behalf of our small businesses. And so that's what was happening internally. And we had babies born. We had family issues. And day by day, we just took them as we could and managed through that crisis. In addition to that, one of my observations was that small businesses really didn't understand that they had access to these funds. And so I went on a very public Twitter campaign in order to try to help the smallest businesses gain access to insight and help. And so if there was someone who DM'd me on Twitter, I would answer. There was someone who called me if there was anyone who contacted Square, we set out to make sure that we could do our best to call them. Now, wasn't always perfect, trust me. When you have that many people calling all at once in a system that is not built for that kind of scale and crisis, we disappointed some people in this process. But we were doing whatever we could to answer everyone's questions. And where we saw groups of questions, we would try to publish responses. But even if you look back to my Twitter feed in April, I was answering tax questions for folks on what forms they needed to fill out and making sure that we could give whatever form we could to small businesses all over the country so they could get supported with PPP loans. That's incredible.
0: That's incredible. And I'm looking forward to the book.
1: (laughs) Honestly, if you ask anyone from the Square Capital team, they will tell you it was one of the most extraordinary products that we have ever built. And extraordinary experiences because of the crisis, the drama, the pain we felt for our small businesses, and the ever unfolding law that was happening in front of us every day. There were days when we had to completely rebuild what we built the day prior. And we took that frustration, kind of shrugged our shoulders and moved on. And everybody knew that we were all doing our best. And it was one of the most extraordinary ways to understand in a crisis how operating with the best of intent and intensity around a purpose is the most important thing you could do in order to drive an outcome. I think we took something that could have taken six months to build, and we built it in two weeks. The other, it's a digression, but it's an important one. A lot of the folks on the team were women, interestingly. And if you look at the composition of our team, it probably looks very different than every other bank in America. And that ranged from our head of engineering to our head of ops, head of capital markets, head of legal, me, head of product, head of data science. Like, I mean, it kept going on from there. Not head of data science, actually, one of our key data scientists. I shouldn't have said that. But we had the most extraordinary team and an incredible group of women who will take this experience with them and be better executives for it.
0: Yeah, no, it almost sounds like wartime. A lot. That's of, what
1: it felt like. Yeah. Um, uh, we did a champagne debrief after it was all yeah. done with all of our volunteers. We sent a bottle of champagne around to everybody and a very cool pair of sweatpants that our design team designed with our PPP logo. We won a design award for our PPP application. But we sent a champagne around and then told stories from the experience. And the stories are incredible and people's emotions around it. And whether they had talked to a small business that was crying on the phone with us or wondering what they were going to do, we were, you know, one tenth engineer, one tenth psychiatrist, one tenth business advisor, one tenth tax advisor, one tenth friend. Unfortunately, one tenth disappointment in some cases. But, you know, the role that we fit in that experience was so unusual for business people building a product. And we certainly wore the emotion on our sleeve and tried to serve the needs of everyone we could.
0: That's incredible. I'm very glad I asked. (laughs) (laughs) And Jackie, so moving forward, where within FinTech are you looking at? Are there any areas of the industry that you're particularly interested in?
1: Yeah, I am investing heavily in fintech. And I believe the next 10 years, you will see fintech disrupt the banking industry. And I think the understanding and appreciation for the problems that small businesses and consumers have around financial products is extraordinary. And the appetite to try new products and financial services right now is unprecedented. And so I believe that it's an incredible opportunity to invest throughout the market, both in the United States as well as in Europe. I know a lot less about Southeast Asia, so I haven't really expanded my horizons there. But I do see a willingness to try new products because of the use cases that a lot of consumers have around pain points with moving money, holding accounts, Getting organized in their financial life and feeling like the products are working for them. And I think fintech is really meeting the needs of people in a way that traditional banks are not.
0: You hope to stay close to the companies where you invest in?
1: If I can be helpful, I would. I obviously would love to help entrepreneurs build their businesses. You know, I have a lot of pattern recognition from having spent 25 plus years in this industry, both in a traditional side as well as. The technology driven side. And so I really enjoy working with entrepreneurs to help them grow. So far, so good.
0: (laughs) And partially, I guess, for fintech to thrive, you also need the right regulation. What's your view of the regulatory landscape? Do you think the regulator is, is moving in the right direction?
1: I would not so much as call it right regulation, but an understanding of how to navigate the regulatory environment. When you're moving money, you got to take it seriously. That's one of the things I also appreciated about Square is that you got to take the regulatory contracts very seriously and not screw up. You don't want to lose trust because you you don't build your product the right way. You get in trouble with regulators. It's really important to maintain that trust and to make sure that you're working with the regulatory regime that exists today. I think where you see opportunities to change that because of an evolution of products, that's where I feel like you should keep pushing the envelope with relationships that are born out of trust. And so, lending is a great example where the law really evolved both from a lawsuit point of view, driving some of the constraints around how the lending business has grown up, as well as just the regulatory regimes. Having an appreciation for what fintech can do. And so I think as regulators become more comfortable with the scale and scope of the way that compliance and legal systems operate in fintech and the way products work in the context of the law today, I think they become more comfortable with what's there and then start to poke and prod at where there are weaknesses. And so, you know, I do think there's a lot of room for companies to grow up, for regulators to see the evolution of financial products. I don't think it's a perfect system at all. And I'll use CRA as an example of that, where you know CRA law built uh, in banking was meant for banks that have branches. And so in the context where I'm trying to start a bank at Square, it really doesn't apply to a technology business that really doesn't have branches. And so there are different parts of the law that will evolve over the next 10 years as regulators become more sophisticated about technology.
0: Fascinating. Jackie, this, this has really been a treat and very, very interesting for me and for the entire audience, I have no doubt. Before we let you go, Jackie, we always love to ask about our guests' hobbies. And perhaps you could tell us what are some of your favorite
1: hobbies. So I'm sitting here in Aspen right now. I love to ski. Probably my favorite sport. So, skiing, hiking. I have three kids and a foster child. So, I'm not really sure I have any hobbies at this point in time. My hobbies are what my kids want to do. And so, I'm completely willing to subordinate my personal interests and time in order to get my kids to whatever they need right now. You know, I do like to read. I could devour the FT, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times before. Most people are awake in the morning. I love to think about relationships and products and how I can be helpful to people. Very business driven interests, really. You know, I could spend my free time thinking about cool products. You know, I open up my wallet to pay for something, I get frustrated with the way that one of my debit cards or credit card looks, and I don't understand why we can't fix it. And so I try to think about different ways that new products could evolve based on what's happening in my personal life but I don't really have any incredible hobbies to speak of, unfortunately, beyond just investing and having fun in a work context and a context with my kids and family.
0: Sounds like you're busy in in many directions.
1: Yeah, it sounds kind of lame, but (laughs) I'm a mom. Although I do find my being a parent, an involved parent, helps me understand a lot of problems with products. And whether that be a consumer product, apparel, banking cards or banking products. I think women are consumers in the American economy. And so I think it provides helpful insight into how to improve what happens in our day-to-day life.
0: Well, Jackie, again, a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of Wharton. And you're always invited to continue coming back to campus. We definitely miss you.
1: No, I'm great. I have a 17-year-old and I'm hoping she wants to go to Penn, but we'll see. And, and other kids behind her. So we'll see what happens. I could use it as a great excuse to come back, go no. see my sorority house. I was a tried out when I was at Penn. So I'd love oh, to come no. back.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Jackie.
1: Oh, thank you. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wartom FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.